Welcome back to Leading Causes. I'm your host, Dr. Fernando Villacien, Senior Medical Director of Cardiology at New Century Health. With me to discuss the problem of underuse in cardiology is Dr. Nihar Desai, Associate Professor of Medicine and Associate Chief of the Section of Cardiovascular Medicine at Yale University School of Medicine and Medical Director for Value Innovation at the Yale New Haven Health System. And Dr. Ileana Pina, Clinical Professor at Central Michigan University and past chair of the American Heart Association's Council on Clinical Cardiology. Today, we're going to talk about one of the most unappreciated problems in cardiovascular care and healthcare in general, and that is the problem of underuse. Underuse of evidence-based care is rampant in cardiology with serious impacts on patient outcomes and costs. Underusing a high-value cardiology service can be like driving your car 15,000 miles without an oil change. You might save $50 today, but it will cost you thousands later when your engine is ruined. Studies have found underuse is about four times as common as overuse. Yet, it gets much less attention, and prior authorization programs are blind to underuse because they deal with services that have been requested, not those that have been omitted. So we need to find other ways to address this problem. This is a fascinating topic, and I'm excited to hear your perspectives, Dr. Pina and Desai. Let's get into it. Can you describe some examples of underuse? Sure, Fernando, and thanks again for having us with you. I think that as people get really busy, uh, they forget things like the risk factors and screening for the risk factors. Why is that important? Because we know that controlling the risk factors up front can really uh, lower the chances of the patient having an adverse uh, event of some sort, whether it's a heart attack or it's a stroke, things like diabetes. Um, now we have drugs that we have shown can actually improve the outcomes. High blood pressure, which is so common and so rampant, and yet the blood pressure gap between knowing what the number is and actually controlling it really still exists. And those are just some top-of-the-line examples. Yeah, Fernando, I might just add, you know, thank, thanks again for having us. I couldn't agree with you more that this is um, such an important issue, and, and we probably don't spend enough time talking about it. But but to where Ileana was going, I think the examples are pretty widespread. I think in every part of cardiovascular medicine, you can probably identify examples of underuse. You know, she rightfully, um, you know, pointed to risk factor modification and, you know, the importance of, you know, blood pressure control is just one example. You could also go to the sort of other end of the spectrum and say, among patients that have important cardiovascular diseases like heart failure or coronary artery disease, that we underuse evidence-based therapies day after day, time after time, for patient after patient. Um, we know that high-quality, high-value evidence-based therapies like beta blockers and you know ACE inhibitors or other medicines that we know are highly effective for patients that have heart failure, or similarly, things like statins or cholesterol-lowering medicines for patients that have coronary artery disease are very much underused. Um, in 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 the U.S. healthcare system and our patients with cardiology. So I, you know, it, it's really great to kind of be with you and Ileana and kind of you know talking about um, this very important issue. So that that brings me to the next question: Is what are the root causes perpetuating this underuse? 
Well, I, I, you know, as I said before, Fernando, I think that providers get busy. And, um, you know, if the patient isn't calling you with problems, which is one of the things with screening, the patient may not have symptoms yet, or the symptoms may be stable, um, but you're missing something if you're, mo if you're not monitoring them. So I think one of them is just getting busy. The other one is inertia. And we know that that exists specifically uh, with some of the medications that Nihar just listed, where we know that patients are not being treated to the maximum doses that we know work, uh, that have been shown time and time again to improve outcome. And if you can improve outcomes, you also lower costs because you're preventing the worst uh, thing happening, the worst event happening. Uh, so things like uh, you know ACE inhibitor use, beta blocker, MRAs, are not being used uh, to the levels that they should. And we have this now from a, an important registry called the CHAMP registry that I think I've learned a lot from. Nihar, what do, what do you think about the CHAMP registry? Yeah, Ileana, I think, I think that's, that's a great example. I mean, CHAMP was a very contemporary look at patients with heart failure. And, and I think what it set forth to do was to really describe what contemporary patterns of care look like. For, for our patients with heart failure with a reduced ejection fraction or kind of a weakened heart muscle, if you will, where we know there's a number of important therapies that can reduce the risk of rehospitalization, that can reduce the risk of, of, of having, you know, worsening of, of your heart failure symptoms and maybe even preventing the risk of cardiovascular death. Um, and many of those medicines, uh, beta blockers and ACE inhibitors and you know, mineralocorticoid receptor antagonists. There's a number of therapies that we might think about there. And what CHAMP showed us was, again, in a relatively contemporary kind of assessment, that maybe a quarter of the patients actually receive all the medicines that they should get. And then I think to Ileana's point, that if you look at, you know, the proportion of patients that get all of the medicines at the doses that we know were tested in the clinical trials and that are endorsed by the guidelines, it's about 1%. So I think we are systematically, you know, undertreating and underusing highly effective therapies. And I think the other point that I would make, I think, Ileana, you rightfully pointed to some of the drivers of this. And you said, you know, I think, you know, there's an issue around education. I think there's an issue around patient engagement and, you know, patient empowerment, you know, that, that probably, you know, needs to be talked about. Um, I think there's probably one other important, you know, contributor here. I think you also mentioned inertia is what happens in the ecosystem and what is the payment system that is um, prevailing in our healthcare system. And, and that I think in many ways is still incentivized around, you know, volume-based reimbursement, paying for procedures, um, paying for hospitalizations, maybe even rehospitalizations, And so you have this fundamental disconnect where um, instead of having a system that is aligned around health in some ways, where compensation and revenue is oriented around the prevention of disease and the prevention of these costly hospitalizations and procedures and other things, we actually have the exact reverse of that, where we have a system that um, where the financial incentives are around conducting procedures and, you know, around hospitalizations and testing and other things. Um, and so, you know, I think it is an instance where th there's a lot of work to do. I think we have to raise awareness around underuse and continue to do that. 
But I think we also have to probably work towards a different kind of healthcare system that really prioritizes and incentivizes the health of a population rather than healthcare utilization, which is what drives reimbursement now. And there's one more thing that we don't do well. I I think we don't spend enough time because everybody is in such a tight schedule. You know, if they have 15 minutes to see a patient or even eight minutes in some primary care offices, how can you spend that time to really engage the patient? So I think we need, and now in this digital world, to find tools that will engage the patient. So if the provider is not getting that blood pressure under control, to engage the patient that they ask the question, what should my blood pressure be? When do I need to take it again? So that engagement, it's not just education, it's its grabbing them to say, I also have a responsibility for my health and for not getting sick. And I think COVID really just laid this out that when people really take care of themselves, sometimes hospitalizations actually go down in other diseases. Are there success stories out there where organizations are effectively tackling underuse and making sure that more patients get recommended care? Well, there, there have been a, a lot of uh, work done into this area, including randomized trials of some types of telemonitoring. And Nihar, I wonder if you would comment on the Connect HF. I was part of it, so I feel a little conflicted, but if you could tell us more about that. Yeah, sure, Ileana. I think that's I think that's a great example. I think you know, so what the investigators here tried to address was in fact this, the the underuse of highly effective therapies in patients with heart failure in a clinical trial called Connect HF, where you know half of the hospitals had, you know, robust, you know, educational efforts and feedback and monitoring, um, all done admittedly by a kind of centralized you know, study team that was based at um, the Duke Clinical Research Institute. And I think th- despite all of the efforts, you know, in, in that trial, and I think valiant, you know, efforts to try and address this problem of underuse of guideline-directed medical therapy and heart failure, that, that trial had relatively disappointing um, results. I think we didn't see the kind of improvements that we were hoping for. I think suggesting that, you know, just you know, just education or just feedback alone, especially when done from a centralized study team and not connected to that individual patient's care and their clinical team that knows them, that engages with them, that interacts with them um, on a more regular basis, um, didn't have the kind of uh, improvement that we all wanted. So I think Connect was a very important study. I think this notion of trying to test and evaluate different strategies to de- define and determine which ones are successful and, and give us the kinds of results that we want is a very important kind of goal for us to have in cardiovascular medicine and, and, and frankly, more broadly. Um, I think Connect was a bit disappointing. There's certainly a lot more work to do kind of in this area. Yeah, and I think, uh, Fernando, you know, uh, the American Heart has been looking at this um, because we, we need to hear it from the patients. So I've been part of this group. The, the initiative is called Implement, and I've been part of the patient group. And what we hear the patients telling us that they want may be very different than what we think they want. And this is about giving them, for example, a helping app, something that would make it very easy for them to get information when they needed to communicate information 
both to the provider and maybe to part of the team. It could be the pharmacist. You know, I feel very strongly about the importance of pharmacists. Uh, it may be the nurse practitioner working with the team, whoever it is, that communication. But things like, you know, don't send me so many alerts. Don't, don't tell me this. Don't tell me that. So we are learning a lot about what they want before that um, hopefully that uh, software will be developed, keeping the patient at their site in mind, since I think as Nihar well put it, you know, giving the advice from a central place was very disappointing, which we felt was going to be great. That That's not what they wanted. So I think we need to hear the patients out and, and to engage them. I think we're learning better how to do that. What I'm taking from your experience is that it's really important to meet patients where they are and have true two-way exchange of information. No, I, I agree. I think that um, part of engaging the patient is giving them the information that they need to make a decision. So this decision sharing, um, so that they are making the decision with the knowledge that they need. Uh, many times we throw around the, this terminology that the patients do not understand. And so making it better for them to understand and make that choice based on knowing what they're getting into and knowing very importantly, what questions do they need to ask their, their team that's caring for them, their provider team. And of course, this all assumes that we have teams of providers who are focusing on underuse and engaging with the patient about it. As we've discussed, that's not always the case. So, um, Fernando, you know, the, the traditional model uh, is, you know, you ask for permission basically to do a procedure, um, but you don't ask permission to monitor blood pressure or to monitor cholesterol. So how, how would you guys put this into your whole, you know, strategy, which is really to improve patient care? I mean, that, that's your end result is to improve patient outcome and to improve patient care. How would you do that? Well, improvement opportunities can, can only be identified by analyzing claims and authorization data uh, and engaging these physicians and practices to, uh, by reporting to them, doing audit and giving feedback and educating them through peer-to-peer -peer education. Uh, about how quality and cost performance can be improved. You know, fortunately, the fee-for-service mo model uh, does not incentivize providers to seek out these, these uh, underused high-value services. But instead, uh, we believe that alternate payment models can increase that alignment with, with these providers, allowing them to share in the savings, and we therefore deliver that kind of care that improves clinical and financial outcomes. We leave it there for today. Dr. Pina, Dr. Desai, thank you for, your, for joining me for another great discussion. To those listening, don't forget to visit us at newcenturyhealth.com for more on this topic and for future episodes in this series.